Also, can we shout out Timothy Oliphant? Oh my God, Jenna. Oh my God. It's honestly, it's negligent of me. And I'm sorry that yeah. I didn't shout it out earlier. I have been replaying clips of Timothy Oliphant on the Conan O'Brien show since I was 13 years old to help me relax. Okay. <laughs> this man is important to me in a way that I doubt he's important to a lot of people. And the fact that he played their manager and the fact that he stole every God, every scene, scene he was in, he was in and that mustache and that wig. Give me more of him. Welcome to Red Wine Reads, a community of book lovers talking about our favorite and not-so-favorite books while pouring a glass or two of wine. I'm your host, Jenna Miller, and today I have two guests with me. I have Ella Kopakin, one of our co-hosts that we know and we love, and her mother, Wendy, who decided to join us on this very special episode. Today, instead of doing a book review, we are doing a TV series review. It's a little different, but bear with us. Today, we are going to be reviewing Daisy Jones and the Six, the TV series on Amazon Prime. Now, we brought on Wendy because she lived through the 70s in LA, so she's going to add some context for us. And of course, Ella and I did do a review of Daisy Jones and the Six, the book by Taylor Jenkins Reid back last year. So if you want to go listen to that book review, the link is in the show notes. We hope you enjoy this very special episode. And without further ado, let's pull some corks and get watching. This week, we watched Daisy Jones and the Six, the TV series on Amazon Prime. Alrighty, welcome to a very, 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 very special episode of Red Wine Reads because we have a special guest with us. Indeed, it is Ella and I am here to introduce the first parent on the pod, my mom, Wendy. Hello, hello. I mean, how can I, I hope I live up to the expectations. Oh, you've already surpassed them simply by being here. Oh my. I'm very excited. I'm a huge fan of the podcast. And I would say that single-handedly you've been our PR person before we had a PR person. Oh, yeah. No, I have anybody I meet. I'm like, oh, you know, um, my, my daughter, daughter podcast. is on this podcast and it's such a great idea and it's so fantastic. Oh, my gosh. Wow. We're really just starting off strong here. This is great. So this is even an even more special episode because we're not reviewing a book per se, but we are reviewing a TV series that was based off of a book that Ella and I did a review a couple months back, uh, back in the first season of the show. <laughs> yeah, it's a, it was like a very long time ago. Yeah. And so here we are. We've watched the series and we have some thoughts and we wanted to bring on a special guest because not only are we able to provide the book to TV show context, we have someone who is living in this time period who is embracing LA at its peak. And she's here to tell us how the show did at displaying that time period. So we watched Daisy Jones and the Six, which is streaming on Amazon Prime right now. Daisy Jones, a book that we famously were super middling on. Yes. We enjoyed it. We liked the format. We liked our characters. We didn't love a lot of it. It's one of those books that clearly was written to be adapted. Mm. And I think that as a television show and as a script worked a lot better. I think the 70s and particularly the rock scene is so tangible that unless you actually lived through it, like we when we reviewed I'm with the band or L.A. Woman, which were like really, really great examples of that. It felt like it was rewriting history a little bit. We talked a lot about that and how it was handling like in the book, in the book and how it was handling women 
and how it was mm. handling race and how it was handling a lot of things. That's it consistent in the show, too. Yeah, I think it is consistent in the show, but I think even more so in the book, there was just something missing. Yeah, I really liked the format of it because it was written in a documentary style format. So it was like every line was somebody else speaking um, and it was written in like a script format. So it very much played itself to be adapted in this way. And so I think that aspect of this book was really fascinating and made it an interesting read. But like Ella was saying, I mean, there's only so much you can do without being able to write context of things. And so when you have someone trying to write this story and provide context through characters and solely through their dialogue, it gets to be a little bit muddled, but it also gets to be monotoned. And like you're only getting really the writer's perspective of it instead of all these different characters. And I think like through the show, they do a little bit better job at kind of showing those relationships and showing like them walking through the streets and even the songs, being able to hear the actual songs instead of reading the lyrics, then you're kind of get more immersed in that world. Yeah, I think. Okay, let's get into it. I don't know if you're going to agree, but for us, the main thing that we walked away from, I remember from our podcast, was how deeply unlikable Daisy was as compared to the other characters. And I walked out of the show thinking that the show was so much more sympathetic to Daisy. Yeah. I also just think a lot of that was because I think Riley Keough was the best actor in the show. And so she was able to provide that. No, I agree. I think the first four episodes, I was really upset about how they displayed Daisy Jones. I was like, this is not the Daisy Jones that the book gave us, which is this confident. She's like, I don't really give a fuck. I could not care less about anybody but myself. That's how like you're reading her. And then when you're getting her in the first four episodes, she just seems so polished and like one dimensional. But as the series went on, I was like, yes, that's who I want to see. And the fact that they made her so almost you are sympathetic toward her at the end because you're like, yeah, Billy was an asshole with her. And like she's been through a lot, but she also is super selfish. And I think they did a really good job at really developing that character as the series went on. But for the first four episodes, I was even telling Ella, I was like, I'm going to hate it because they ruined one of my favorite characters to hate. But they did uh, redeem her character quite a lot toward the end of it. They did. But okay, what was unrealistic to me was that she would have such incredible bravado and she had such horrible parents, particularly her mother. I think it would have been more realistic to show a little more struggle or like how it was really a persona that she created, which is true. That is what she did. But that didn't make any sense to me. She was a little too confident. But although, you know, at the end, when she gets the letter from her mom and it does really affect her, it's still there. But she seemed to be a little too evolved emotionally. In the book, she's even more two-dimensional. Like, she's so easy to hate in the book. It's really funny because for a book that is so focused on developing women and leaning into telling the 70s through a post-Me Too lens, it's so much kinder to Billy. And... I think I walked out of the show liking Billy a lot less and liking Daisy more, which is actually what I think Taylor Jenkins Reid intended. Now, my favorite relationship in the book was Graham and Karen. And even though I loved it in the show, I liked it a lot less because Graham is does not come off well in the book. He's a lot meaner. He's a lot more misogynistic when the whole abortion thing comes up. And... 
Karen in the book is, I think they made her sort of more sensitive in the show, which I don't necessarily think was a bad trait, but it was sort of like the three dimensionality that they allowed for Daisy with her messiness. They didn't really allow for Karen and Taylor Jenkins redid a really good job of that in the book. So like the dynamic between, and we'll get into Camilla and we'll definitely get into Simone, but I think they sort of sacrificed a lot of Karen's tenacity in order to make more room for Daisy when I think they could have done more with Karen. Yeah. And you know, I hate to say it, but I think a big part of that is the casting choice. Yes. She cannot carry this character. And like the fact I was so upset that they got rid of the most essential part to Karen's character in the book was the fact that she introduced herself at first as Karen Karen. And so then that was like her name throughout the book. And then they didn't have that whole storyline. And that's part of her badassery. Yeah. By casting Suki Waterhouse, who I'm not dissing, Hmm. but Suki Waterhouse doesn't have a lot of acting experience. She's a supermodel. I'm dissing her. I thought she was so subpar. This is the 70s. She's a rock, you know, Chrissy Hine. These women who were so gritty. There was no grittiness to her at all. Even they had her like dressed up in leather and shit. She was still pretty. That was not authentic. Well, and even in the book, they describe her. They don't describe her as being this drop-dead gorgeous woman. They describe her as kind of a gritty, hardcore. She's not going to turn heads, but she's going to turn heads because she's the only female up there on the stage. And I think the only glimmer of hope that I got, and then it was quickly smashed, of maybe this will take a turn for her character, was her telling Graham, I don't want to be known as the girlfriend. Like, that's the only thing I'm here for. And I was like, yeah, yeah, that's give us a little bit more of that. But then it's just, yeah, Suki Waterhouse. I don't think she could handle it. This sort of brings us into the Camilla of it all, too. And I remember us talking about this. So at the very end of our podcast, we looked at the casting choices because that was the only thing that had been released. Oh, that's at, at that point. And we both had the same reactions, which was like Riley Keough. Yes. Sam Claflin as Billy. Maybe we didn't know who a lot of the others were. And then when we saw Camila Marone, who's also a model and Suki Waterhouse, we were both like, really? When we talked about Camilla and we, when we talked about Karen, Karen was such a Patty Smith type, exactly like you're saying. And then Camilla was written to be, yes, she was, she was pretty. Her and Billy were a beautiful couple. And actually, I didn't dislike Camilla Marone's performance, but it's sort of the thing of, to quote Almost Famous, your looks have become a problem. The fact that they were both so abnormally gorgeous never allowed you to get into either of those characters. Yeah, it was distracting. And I'm not trying to be like, oh my God, pretty people suck. Because like, they are both valid as human beings and they are supermodels. Both of those things are true. But by the same token, when you don't cast people who look average in a decade which was famous for promoting people who were average. That's the thing I felt like Camilla was so striking that it almost was unbelievable that like this girl would be living in a band house cleaning up after everybody. She would have been scooped up and become a star. And I don't know about you, Jenna, but like Camilla's character in the book, I remember us talking about it. We both really liked her. 
And she had a lot of groundedness in the book. No, I was going to say, I had that thought while we were watching it. There were so many great parts in the book when she has these really deep conversations with Karen and even with Daisy. And they're these very philosophical, how is it to be a woman in this time? And it's such an interesting perspective to have this woman who's outside of the band, first of all, and have it be this woman perspective. And she was able to provide such this like key point of humanity because she's like the only person that's not crowded by this chaotic band culture and everything else. And she has a daughter and she's like, I'm trying to live the most normal life I can given the circumstances. And when you have someone like that actress and she's coming in, she has like a two-year-old at home and you're like, there is no way (laughs) that you would look like that after like being a single mother for two years. Take it from me. No. Yeah. No, exactly. And what was most heartbreaking to me is I walked away from the book, not especially loving it, but it didn't feel like a love triangle. The end of the book very much felt like, you know what? Billy and Camilla were meant to end up together. Camilla had a really great head on her shoulders. They both complimented each other. And Camilla didn't feel like the housewife. She felt like arguably the most fully realized person in the book. She was very much there as a guide for Daisy and Karen and knew what she wanted and was highly intelligent and really talented in her own right. And it was just kind of a bummer because I remember Graham and Camilla being the two most interesting characters to me in the book. And in the end, it felt like the TV show was more interested in a basic love triangle and was way more interested in Billy and Daisy seeming right for each other and Camilla getting in the way. I don't know if I'd agree with that. Okay. No, I, I, I think she came across as the rock and the adult in the room. I think that came across, especially at the end. I mean, when she was dying, she was like, your dad should contact her. No, I, I, I disagree. I, I think that that did come across. I think what could have been promoted more was the connection between the women. They kind of forced that. All of a sudden she's talking to Karen and, you know, like, oh, how long has it been going on with you and Graham? Like she has this like incredible insight, but you never really saw them connect before, except for when Karen at the table, when they're like picking the name and, you know, she's like, well, why don't we call it the six? And then that's like this little moment that they have. But other than that, you didn't really see anything. It was like, oh, I guess they're really good friends. Yeah. What I remember vividly in the book was the conversation that happened between Camilla and Karen in which Karen tells Camilla that she's pregnant and Camilla lays out for her like, you know what? It's okay that you don't want a kid. This was my path. This is going to be your path. And I really missed that conversation. That's a And that's a big conversation. Yes. And I missed it too, because then you have her telling Daisy, like, don't discount yourself for like having kids in the future. Like you could have a kid. And so you have that conversation with Daisy, but you don't have the conversation with Karen, which, you know, is an interesting perspective coming from her. And so it's just, I super missed that. And I super missed the relationship between Graham and Billy, the brotherly relationship. They completely missed that. Like there is a scene, <laughs> I just kept waiting for it and it never happened and I was so upset. But there's a scene where it's right after Graham and Karen had broken up. They had this huge blow up fight surrounding like the baby and surrounding Karen's decision to have an abortion and just this huge blow up fight. And all and it says like all I wanted was my brother and he goes down to the bar and he finds Billy there drinking and then Billy just gets up and like blows right past him. Their relationship as brothers is such an interesting dynamic with them being in the band together, with them having their own separate, really messed up issues. And then 
them not really talking about it like brothers and then they just didn't feel like it in the show. And I was really just uh, I was really bummed about that. That would have been a good scene. That would have been important. Here's the person we haven't brought up that I would really like to bring up. Simone. Here's here's the thing. I appreciated a lot that they dug deeper into her in the show because she is barely a character in the book. She's there, but she's mainly there to be Daisy's sense of reason. Here's the tricky part. This is a very white show. And I appreciated that they tried to bring in non-whiteness by making Warren a Latinx character as opposed to making Warren a white guy. And the same with Camilla. Simone and Teddy are the only black characters. The fact that Simone was saddled with being the only black woman and on top of it, the only queer character and the only avenue into the other side of 70s music, which was very non-white and queer period in the disco scene. It's tough because on the one hand, we see even less of her in the book. And on the other hand, it felt like they really were trying to make this show about this central love triangle in which two of the characters were hot white people. And then they like, I mean, I'm saying like the creators of the show, and the producers didn't want to appear like they didn't want to be inclusive. They were like, well, we'll really build Simone's world out and we'll make her queer on top of it. Well, clearly, I mean, it's a very deliberate move. There's very deliberate and, you know, okay, fine. If you're going to make that jump and you're going to do it, then at least give her some something. She could have been more like one of the gang. They felt so different. Their lives felt so different. So it didn't even make sense that they were best friends. I was struggling because her character, it felt like such a derailing from the actual story when they had, when they did any cutaways to like her story. I get it, but I like I also don't get it because in the book, her character wasn't built out, but she was such a key component to understanding who Daisy was. And she was able to do that solely through interviews and solely through just being a talking head. And also you could have her show up at that night they meet and you could get a sense for who she is. And they really made her almost like meek and like not confident. And in the book, she was like the most confident person. Didn't doubt herself for a second. That's why they connected. That's why Daisy and her like were drawn to each other because they were both so confident in themselves and they were so confident in their talent. And I felt like I wasn't getting that with this. And then they tried to make her story a love story and have her turn down this like huge record deal for love. Which makes absolutely no sense. Because by the way- There's no way she would have done that. None. In the in the book, she becomes like a huge star. She's basically Donna Summer. To diminish Simone's light, to not have her become as successful as she is in the book, to saddle her with a lot of two-dimensionality that she didn't deserve. The place I feel like she was used the most, and actually I do think that Nabia Bey, who played her, was great. I think that she did what she could with the writing. And I actually think Bernie, who wasn't in the book, who played her love interest, the person who played her was good. She was good. But... Other than, oh, that's what I was saying. The Grease episode was where she was used. Well, I was about to say that episode alone to show Simone's character. She was phenomenal in that. That's where you get to see her and actually see the emotion and see her relationship with Daisy and see how much it means to her and see how much it means to Daisy. That last scene where she's like, you're not a good person. You, you are being mean. You're being awful. You're being mean to me. You're being mean to your band. You're not thinking of anyone. She was great in that. And I wish that I had seen more of her saying, 
you're being an asshole. I know I'm good. I know I'm talented. And actually, I don't need to be your friend. I choose to be your friend. I choose to have you in my life. There was not enough of that. She felt like she was along for the ride too often. And then when they tried to put her own story in, it was like it was too little too late. Because then to not even give her the credit of being a star as big as Daisy was very weird to me. I agree. 100%. That's accurate. Yeah. And I feel like before we move, because I feel like we do need to move on to our context portion of this episode. But I, I have one very important question that I would love to ask you both. The chemistry between Billy and Daisy, was it there? Was it not? Because for me, I I could not get those two together. Also, Billy was he looks at least 30 years older than everyone at every single portion of this. Yeah, but that all that kind of makes sense because he's an alcoholic. So, you know, you like do that many drugs and alcohol. You can look really haggard and old. I will say quick. You look at old pictures of Robert Plant, the lead singer of Led Zeppelin, for those who don't know. He looks like he's 45. Yeah, they that's when he's kind of accurate. That's kind of accurate. As far as the chemistry, sorry, you are a hundred percent wrong. Like, oh my God. I I was like I know there was fire. There was, I mean, I bought it hook, line and sinker. I think this is being colored by my mom's borderline obsession. With oh, Sam Clapton. <laughs> he is. I can't even talk. I can't even find the word. May I say that there were multiple times of us watching the show and my mom going, who looks like that? Who looks like, who is that person? I've never even seen him before. Like, what do you mean? Like, how can you look like that? I couldn't even, I, no. Okay. But by the way, I also felt that way about her. There's something, she's so magnetic and the two of them are ridiculous. They're so good looking. That's a good note to end on before we move on to the context, which is going to be my mom's bread and butter here. Riley Q and Nabia Bay were the two people who were perfectly cast as Simone and Daisy because they are both supposed to be out of this world gorgeous. Everyone else's level of attractiveness needs to be reconsidered. And I will get into Graham. I have a lot to say. Oh my God, Ella loves Graham. No, it's co- it's more complicated than that. Will Harrison, shout out. I know you did a lot with a little, okay? Let's talk about the context because my mom, for those of you who know that I'm the proud LA person on this, on this podcast, my mom, I'm just going to introduce you a little bit. Okay. So... Both of my parents are born and raised in L.A. My mom's dad was born and raised in L.A. My mom is like the quote unquote epic person of L.A. She was born in 1963 in the Valley. She knows I was born in the city. Excuse me. I'm so sorry. Okay. We moved to the Valley when I was eight. I was born in the city. Point being that if you want to talk to my mom about 60s and 70s Los Angeles, she is an expert. So, yes, Jenna, fire away. All right. Uh, I know I know we wanted to start with uh, makeup and costumes here. Makeup, hair, costumes, the works. I mean, they were certainly polished. 
But they, you know, like the scenes, the art direction when they were at the whiskey, the art direction when they were at the central. Well, it's not the central now. What did they call that? Oh, at Filthy McNasty's because it used to be the central, which used to be now. And now what's it called now? The Viper Room. It's the Viper Room now. Is it still a Viper Room? Yeah. But you have to provide a little context here about how many shows you went to. Oh, yeah. That's the other thing. So not only did I grow up in L.A., I mean, I was hardcore into music. So this was a time you could see everybody for nothing. And by the way, that whole scene with her sneaking into the the back of the whiskey, totally real. I snuck into shows. Yeah. You just like, I knew the bouncer at the, the doorman at the Roxy. You could get a ticket to the Roxy or the whiskey for, I don't know, 20 bucks or 15 bucks. Yeah, no. So I saw everybody. So as far as the art direction, they got it. There were moments we were watching. I was like, oh my God, this is so accurate. They nailed it. And it was really fun. I mean, it was for someone like me to watch it. I was immersed. It felt like going back in time. The other question I have for you, though, is... How did you feel about how they handled the relationships between the men and women and how they handled Daisy's assault, sexual assault when she was a teenager, the sex of it all, the sexual politics of it all, the misogyny of it all? How do you think it was in relation to how it actually was at the time? Uh, Totally unrealistic. Because first of all, sex was everywhere. Everybody had sex with everybody. And it was like a You just didn't think about it. But that being said, it's not like women were super empowered. So you might be in that scenario or you might be in that scenario as a young person. And all of a sudden you find yourself in a very uncomfortable situation. And she had way too much awareness. Not that you wouldn't feel bad. You would. But it would have been more realistic if she had treated it as a conquest rather than really for her to be, I mean, maybe years later, and yes, she could carry it with her, but it was such a accepted part of the time. And men just controlled everything. Even though women were working more and doing more and all of that, it was, it's, was still very much a guy's world. You know, so I guess you could say women understood that power, but if something bad ended up happening or if they... We're in a situation they want to be in. That was just an understood result. Well, I guess also the other thing I want to say about this after reading, I'm with the band and LA woman who are two real women who lived through this as young teenagers. What's really missing from this show. All the women are very consciously, not only over 18, but just older generally. And a huge part of the rock scene was young girls Young teens sleeping with these men, worshiping these men, being assaulted by these men. And it just wasn't in the show. And I and it wasn't in the book. And I guess that was the part of me that bothered that bothered me about the book and bothered me about the show was as hard as Taylor Jenkins Reid and the creators of the show worked to make it about the women, quote unquote, there was so little acknowledgement of exactly what you're talking about of like, okay, but what about the multitude of women who were not of age, who were not old enough to understand the complexity of what they were walking into? And by not including that element at all, then it does just become about like 
the love triangle. Yeah, and I don't know if you guys caught this, but now that you're saying, now that you're talking about this, this made me think of it. Camilla at the very end tells Billy, she's like, I've been in love with you since I was 18. She like makes a point to say that she was 18. We're talking about a time I could walk into a bar as a 16 year old and get a drink. No problem. I could get into the Roxy or wherever. No problem. And I didn't have a fake ID. They'd say, how old are you? And I'd, oh, I'm 18. Oh, I'm 21. Okay. You know, and they knew, they knew you were underage. So as Ella saying, so all of a sudden you're like a 16 year old and you're sitting there, you know, having martinis with a 30 year old and he knows what's going on. And you're kind of like, you're just so excited to be there. I mean, I, there, were, there were many situations I was in like that where I was like, oh, uh, okay. And by the way, you were this age in the late 70s and 80s. If that was going on a decade after this show was about to take place, let's not even talk about how even looser the morals were when this show was taking place. Right. Um, and I just think all of that is important context to have. And the thing is, is it's like, I end up, and I'm sure Jenna, you do too, being this person who's like, I'm in my early 20s now, as someone who aesthetically loves the 70s and loves so many pieces of art and media that were made in the 70s, yeah, it's a difficult acknowledgement that a lot of people were sexist and racist and there was so much taking advantage of people who were underage. That's really, really hard to acknowledge, but I would rather acknowledge it and dialogue with that than ignore it or paint it with rose-colored glasses, which is what this show does in a lot of ways. Yeah, I was going to say, like, the glamorization of this time period, especially lately, um, especially with, like, Gen Z's obsession with, like, the 70s and the 80s, and now getting into the 90s. (laughs) But I think this obsession of just, like, wanting the aesthetic, like you were saying, the aesthetics of, like, the clothes and the fashion and the songs and the sounds and, like, everything like that, they want just the aesthetic of it without the reality of it. And then it's also like, how do you walk that line of creating media that shows healthy relationships, not toxic relationships, yet also accurately depicts the times that they are trying to display? And how do you walk the line of wanting to include people that wouldn't have been included normally in this time period, but you want to include them now to show people watching this that yes, you can also be included in these in these stories from the 70s. So it's like this weird line that you're that the media right now is like walking between telling these true stories, but glamorizing this time period without actually digging into the sometimes ugly truth of what this time period actually represented. And actually, there were some like disturbing things going on, like there are disturbing things going on in our time right now. And so it's like it would be crazy to tell a story of a time period right now without touching on the things that are happening in the culture right now and only telling a story from this like romanticized view. It's hard, but I feel like it's something that we also need to acknowledge because right now we're getting so many shows and movies like this. They're not even scratching the surface of what this actually looked like. Absolutely. And I think I'm not saying that the idea of Daisy Jones or the idea of Camilla or the idea of Karen aren't real because, yes, there were women over 18 who are equally having to break into the industry. And and in the case of Simone, having to deal with their queer identity or having to deal with their non-whiteness in the case of Camilla and Simone, like it's not that those those people's stories aren't valid and real. But I also think like what we haven't talked about is The inner workings of Billy, of Graham, of Warren, Mm. of Eddie, of these men who 
could take advantage of these women and who, if you are a cis man in the 70s and especially a cis white man in the 70s and a cis white man in a very successful band, you are sleeping with everything. Yeah. Also, this does go back to Jenna. I'm curious to hear what you think. You know, what I found really refreshing about the book was there was a lot of inner turmoil in Billy, in his alcoholism, in his fidelity to his wife, in his relationship with his brother. Like, he's a very complex person. And it really was the first time I've seen of like trying to dig into that 70s rock star and saying like, okay, like how does this guy try to exist and try to be a good person with so much around him and so much that he could take advantage of if he wanted to? What is that push and pull like? And instead, and again, Sam Claflin is hot, but there was not a lot of complexity there, both in the writing and in the acting. I think in the later episodes, there was more evidence of his struggle with his alcoholism and his fidelity with Camilla, but I didn't see him having a hard time in a lot of the show, other than he was really trying not to sleep with Daisy. Yeah, no, I was about to say the same thing of like him sitting on the bus and they're like partying on the next bus and he's just sitting there watching TV and it's like, yeah, I'm sad watching TV. No, like that's like not what it would be like at all. Oh my God, no. Yeah, you were tempted in every single corner and it's like you won't go into Daisy's hotel room because there's alcohol behind her and it's like temptation with her and like the alcohol, yet you'll like sleep in a bus right next door to just people getting like absolutely blasted out of their minds and that's all you're hearing all night and you're not going to struggle just a little bit more (laughs) than like being sad watching TV or being sad and going on a jog. I think you get like a little glimpse of that inner turmoil of him calling Camilla and she's asleep. Hey, can I just talk to my daughter? And she's like, no, she's asleep. And then like that's like his only contact home. And then You get like a little bit of glimpse of that. You get a little glimpse of him in like, it's always in the phone booths, I guess. Him in the phone booth where he's like calling Camilla to try to apologize. We're at the very end at the bar. And also it's like, why is that the point that he decides to get a drink? Because in the book, I felt like it was much more planned out. Like he goes to the bar, he orders a drink for himself and he's sitting there and he's looking at it and it's like, what do I do? And then in this case, it was just like some random dude orders him a drink. And like, this is the point that he decides to take the drink. I don't think his his struggle is just like much more rich, I guess, in the book. Like you just saw so many layers of it and you felt it. Yeah, it just didn't it did not come across. It was like all of a sudden he's drinking (laughs) at the end. Well, and I can't speak to that either in that nobody was trying to stop anything that I knew. So I, I can't even imagine how you could be a recovering addict at that point. Yeah, I get that there are going to be people who will watch the show or listen to this episode of our podcast and say like, well, they're individual characters. Like, how can you judge? But the truth is, is that they're written to be very representational of a time. And they're written to be representational of types of people in that time. And I, I really see that particularly in Warren and Eddie, who both in the book and in the show are so just paper thin in terms of who their characters are. And what's really kind of dangerous about that, I will say, is Warren takes the approach of like, well, this is a really fun time and I get to do whatever I want. And Eddie takes the approach of being miserable, but also kind of a womanizer. And by not dissecting the sexual politics behind them, you're writing them off. You're, You're missing an opportunity to say, why did men 
take so much advantage of the privilege that they were given. Why? Warren, the fact that they then were like, and he was, and he was faithful to his movie star girlfriend. And that was the end of that scenario. It was like, please. Oh yeah. Really? No way. Drummers who are famously the lunatics of the band, like John Bonham and Keith Moon. Yeah. That guy was so faithful to his movie star girlfriend and super polite and super appropriate. I'm sure he was just having fun and being nice. Mm-hmm. No. Well, and as much as of a, of a trash movie, this is uh, is the dirt Motley Crue. It was a trash movie, but they did actually get to the heart and the depth of like how fucking crazy these guys were, how these parties were, and how their like relationships in their brain and they're like, I'm gonna do this and not even think about what the hotel bill is gonna be if I smash this window in with a chair. It's just like these crazy concepts, and I feel like they could have like dug a little bit more into that with Warren's character and have him be just kind of like off his rocker. I also think that this was like a oh shit moment with the producers. Like we haven't had these two guys actually talk to each other, which was like Warren and Eddie talking to each other at the very end. But I do think they get to an interesting point where Warren's like, you have everything. You have the money. You have the talent. You have this band. What am I going to do? I may go smoke a joint. I may go pop the bottle off of this $1,000 champagne bottle. I may call my movie star girlfriend. Sounds like a tough life, Eddie. Like, why would you want to leave? And I think they have an interesting point when touching on that. But if they could have like dug a little bit deeper into that, I think that would have been really interesting if they just had Warren be like, like a drummer in the seventies. <laughs> but I think a lot of it also came down to the refusal to admit that a lot of these people gave in to the excess. And the only person that they really did that with was Daisy. And they acted like it was her biggest flaw when really everyone would have been partaking in that. Mm. And yes, there were party scenes in the bus, But they got away with not really diving into that because Graham and Karen were a faithful couple and because they didn't want to get deeper into Warren and Eddie. Um, Which brings me to Graham. Can I just have a minute to meditate on the Graham of it all? They took away the brother relationship. They took away Graham's complicated reaction to Karen's abortion. They took away any complication in his character and just made him like the happy-go-lucky, least complicated white dude and the one that was easiest to love. Yeah, he's like just happy, like strumming his bass. Yeah. Well, guitar. He's a guitar player. I just, again, it's not reality. That guy, if he was in love with Karen, would not have been faithful. I don't think Karen would have been faithful. Uh Uh-uh. No way. What felt so real in that scene in the book when he's reacting to it is like all of a sudden this this guy who's been sweet throughout the entire book just immediately crumbles and attacks the person that he loves because he can't handle that he's not going to have a family. He can't handle that he's not going to have her and he can't handle that he's not going to have what he wants. And that to me was the crux of Graham's character in the book. And that was eliminated in the show. He just was sweet without question. And yeah, he got sad when Karen had an abortion. And yeah, he got sad that they couldn't be together. But I wanted to see his dark side. I wanted to see why him and Billy were brothers. And by the way, in the show, you sort of end up being like, well, why didn't Graham and Karen end up together? Like, yeah, he wanted a family, but he loved Karen more. In the book, you go, Karen and Graham could never end up together. He's too possessive. Yeah, he's too possessive. And Karen... 
in the book was a lot more like upfront about I'm not in it for the family. I'm in this for like the fun. And once it becomes like not fun anymore, that's when we're stopping. It felt like in the show, it was Karen who also fell in love with Graham. But in the book, she was like, no, we were not meant to be together. Absolutely not. I, I'm never going to have a family. I don't want that. And it felt like in the movie or in the show, she was almost like debating it. Yeah, I was going to say, because if that's the case in the book, then they made her have way too much of a dilemma. Yeah, I don't know. And I felt like even in the book, that conversation that happens between her and Camilla gives you the context that you're looking for, for why she wasn't able to tell Graham and then also his reaction to it. It added so much more depth in the book with Karen's character and Graham's character and their reactions to the actual incident. So here's something interesting. We're talking about this show and it really doesn't sound very good. And yet I loved it. I loved it so much. And the funny thing is, is while we were watching it, I was saying, this is not a good show. And I want to watch it over and over and over again. How is that possible? Why is why? I don't understand. Jenna, what did you think of this show? I say skip the first four episodes and then jump in right when like Daisy joins band and they write Honeycomb. I think that's when it gets good. Here's what you need to know. Billy goes to rehab and then he comes back. There you go. That's all you need to know. Daisy's in wants to become a, a singer and then they join forces. And from that moment on, I am a sucker for shows that have original songs. <laughs> That's my bread and butter right there. I freaking love shows that have songs. So I loved that portion of it. But I think like the storytelling is good. The glamorization of this time period, it's fun to watch. The costumes are so good. Just I love seeing what Daisy was wearing. I was like obsessed with all of her outfit choices. You know, if you're looking for just like an easy, breezy, drama filled, oh my gosh, what's going on type show. And you just want to like turn your brain off for a second and listen to some like pretty cool songs. I think it's a great show. I I would recommend it to people. But again, I would say start on like episode five and then watch from then on. I agree. That's when we really got into it. But that's sort of what I would say, too. I am a person who worships trashy teen television. Gossip Girl, Friday Night Lights. That is my stuff. And I think that this really harkened back. That hit that nostalgia point for me. I haven't had a show in a while where I have two romantic characters that I just want to sleep together and fall in love so badly. And this really hit that for me. I think that if you are a person who doesn't really care about the 70s past the aestheticism of it, go for it. You really do not need to give the analyzation that we just gave to it. You can watch it without any of that and really kick back and enjoy it. Have we listened to the songs? Absolutely. And I'm not even normally a person who likes original songs. I skipped past all those pages in the book. I was like, I don't need to read these lyrics. And yet I like the songs. I will absolutely watch this show again because it's prime Ella fan fiction. It's set in the 70s. Hot people are there and they're falling in love. I'm here for the future of Riley Keough's career. Well, and I'm in it because it is like going back to that time for me. They nailed it. It is truly the feel of it, the smoking, because I was a hardcore smoker and I loved smoking. And it just was like, you know, staying out late and the smell of the bars and it was dirty and it just. It needed to be dirtier. It did need to be a little bit dirtier. 
You need to feel the beer on the floor. That's exactly right. I needed oily hair. Yeah. I needed more gross clothing. I didn't feel the stench on the clothing. More pit stains. More pit stains. Yeah. Bring back pit stains. I needed sweat. I needed pit <laughs> yeah. stains. I needed torn clothing. I needed falling apart clothing. I just needed it to feel a little grosser. If anyone doesn't know what I'm talking about, literally tonight, go pick any movie made between 1970 and 1979 and you will see what I'm saying. Hollywood, Hollywood was disgusting. So that should say a lot about what everyday life was like. If they couldn't even make actors less sweaty and hairy. Yeah, it's true. More scenes of them like, you know, in their room, clothes everywhere, picking up a t-shirt, smelling the pits and being like, okay, this is fine. Yeah. Alrighty. Should we end with like a final rating of the TV show? What you would get a give it out of five stars? You go first. All right. I would give this show... 3.8 3.8 out of 5 stars for me. Love the songs. Love the costumes. Uh, love Daisy Jones. After reading the book, I would find it hard to give it a little bit more than that, only because I think there are some very key elements that are missing that I think would have made it just 10 times better. So yeah, I would give it 3.8. Sounds good. Do you want to go or sure? I'll go 5. Absolutely 5. Why? 5, 5, 5. Because it was a ride. It was a ride. I loved the music, which I'm really usually very hesitant about original songs. And clearly, you know, they're a Fleetwood Mac ripoff. So how can you even do that? And they did it like they I thought their voices sounded amazing together. I thought they had chemistry, but it was just fun. It was so fun. And I was so ready to hate it. And I mean, from the get go, I don't give me one, two, three, four, five, all the episodes. I well, actually, I didn't like the Grease episode. But other than that, I was all in. I loved it. Yeah. Um, we didn't really talk about the the husband. I was about to say he's unimportant in the book and he's equally unimportant in the movie. Yeah. Way too much time on that. They also didn't make him as evil as he was in the book. I was ready to like hate him a little bit more. But anyways, that's fine. We talked about that. I was like, he's so unlikable in the book. And they really made him like, yeah, awful, but not awful enough in the in the TV show. Oh, very quickly before I get my rating, I do just have to say the inside joke that both of us have from the songs is Let Me Down Easy has an insane vocal riff in which someone's just going oh through half the song <laughs> in the chorus that's become an um, an inside joke the other thing that's become an inside joke is in the song kill you to try <laughs> sam claflin is incapable of singing like in a non-hilarious way and i only say that to say that the the line that we keep saying and really i keep saying is <laughs> After he says Cape Cod Santa Fe, he says, a little houseboat in Marina Del Rey. And you <laughs> that over and over. It just For doesn't, it doesn't get old. <laughs> His inner Brit comes out when he sings. <laughs> Shout out to that one particular line. Um, I think 3.8 is a great number. I might even bump it up to a four. I would say that as far as 70s aesthetic, I'm there. As far as Riley Keough, I'm there. As far as Will Harrison, I'm there. And I'm sorry. And I know that I'm the only person who cares about Will Harrison, but I do <laughs> care about Will Harrison. And I hope he's okay. Uh, also, can we shout out Timothy Oliphant? Oh my God! How did we not 
talk about him. He's the most realistic. He's dirty. That pool scene when he's in like a robe and like speedos and smoking. Oh boy. Okay. Oh my God, Jenna. Oh my God. It's honestly, it's negligent of me. And I'm sorry that yeah. I didn't shout it out earlier. Yeah. I have been watching, I have been replaying clips of Timothy Oliphant on the Conan O'Brien show since I was 13 years old to help me relax. Okay. <laughs> this man is important to me in a way that I doubt he's important to a lot of people. And the fact that he was in that show and the fact that he played their manager and the fact that he stole every goddamn every scene, scene he was in. He was in and that mustache and that wig. Give me more of him. The note for anything he's in is give me more Oliphant. Yeah. I know. That first episode, I go, wait, is that Timothy Oliphant in a terrible wig? Yes, it sure is. I love it. I love him so much. And I also want to give a huge shout out to the man who plays Teddy Price for being faithful and just like baseline fine. Yeah, he nailed it. <laughs> he killed it. Yeah. He killed it. He was good. He was exactly the like Quincy Jones-esque personality you needed him to be. His house, this has nothing to do with his acting. His house is my dream home. I just really liked that guy. That guy was chill. Him and Timothy Oliphant were like the good baseline yeah. character actor people that you needed. Dear Lord, I love Timothy Oliphant. And actually, I am going to knock my rating down to a 3.8 because I needed more Timothy Oliphant. All right. You know what? I'm going to go down to a 4.3. Yeah, I'm going down to a 4.3. That's how much we could have used more Timothy Oliphant. When you talk about them, it's true. They missed some opportunities. They missed some opportunities. Wow. Thank God you brought that up, Jenna, because the fact that we almost went this entire episode without talking about that. Wow. But yeah, other than that, uh, you know, listen. I'll watch hot people make out anytime on TV. Like and then sing. And then sing. <laughs> and be dressed in seventh clothes. Like I dress like Daisy and or Billy on a daily basis. It's more a lifestyle for me than anything else. And so, yeah, I wish it was better. I wish that it tried to dialogue more with the actuality of the time period instead of an envisioned version of the time period. Um, anyway. Yep. Alrighty, <laughs> that's it. That's Daisy Jones in the sixth the TV show. What a freaking episode. Thank you so much for joining us today. Wendy, I cannot say thank you enough. This was such a great episode. No, this was so fun. Big, big Wendy, thank you. Thank you, Mimadre, for coming on. I loved it. And I love listening to you guys. It's fabulous. Thanks. Well, here, big old, I don't, I have my Yeti here. Big old cheers. 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 Well, that's the show. Thanks so much for listening. If you liked it, please go give it five stars on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you're listening to this podcast right now. If you want more book-related content, you can find us on Instagram and TikTok at rwreadspodcast. Again, that's at R-W-R-E-A-D-S-P-O-D-C-A-S-T at Podcast on Instagram and TikTok. Until next week, keep your books open and your drink glasses full. Thanks all.